0: This is WIOA, and you're listening to What is Opera Anyway, the podcast. I'm Josh Lau.
1: Hello,
0: I'm Josh Lau. And I'm a stage manager who doesn't know a lot about opera. In fact, the only operas I know are the ones I've worked on. This podcast is part of an educational program for the nonprofit organization aptly called What is Opera Anyway? Every other week, I'll be learning about anything and everything opera related. And you're welcome to listen and learn along with me. My hope is to learn more about opera and to get closer to answering that essential question What is opera anyway? My guest is singer and clarinetist Nathaniel Malko, and we're gonna talk about the musicians who play in the orchestra pit of an opera house. We'll first hear about Nate's background, how he got started in music, and we'll just scratch the surface of who is in the orchestra pit.
1: My name is Nathaniel Malko, I'm a baritone, um, a former clarinetist and a student at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York.
0: And um so hi, Nate. You go by Nate or Nathaniel.
1: I usually go by Nate.
0: Um, how How did you get into music? what was what was your what were your earliest memories um, in both classical music um, and in opera?
1: I think my earliest memories of classical music are, Almost in grade school, I I remember having music class twice a week and really loving it. And we would watch things like um, videos of the Nutcracker Ballet and kind of typical general music kind of things. And I always really loved music, music class growing up. Um, But then I, uh, I really did get more into music and specifically classical music kind of when I was in middle school, um, I started playing clarinet at the age of 11, like most middle schoolers, or at least in my town, that's when we started.
0: Why did you choose the clarinet? Was this a school band or school orchestra?
1: Yeah. Um, So one day I went into my band director's office at the time and they asked me, What do you want to play? And I said, "Okay, I'd like to maybe try the flute, the saxophone and the clarinet. And they had me try each of these instruments and I can make a sound on the saxophone. I could not make one on the flute at all. (laughs) Uh, And I made a sound on the clarinet, a little bit of squeaking, but not too much. And I thought, let's go with the clarinet. I like how it looks. I like how it sounds. I think I'm going to learn it. And that's going to be my instrument through middle school and high school.
0: And when did you start singing? uh,
1: In general music class, when I was younger, we would sing songs like um, typical nursery rhymes and stuff like that. But I didn't really get like clarinet. I didn't really get into singing until I was back in middle school. Um, I joined choir in sixth grade. We actually had the option of being in band or choir or both, And so I was in both band and choir um, starting in sixth grade. And that's kind of where I was both a singer and a clarinetist for a time. I think my some of my biggest memories of that middle school time in my life was in sixth grade. Um, at the end of that year, we were doing a Motown concert and our choir was doing the music of the Jackson Five. And I auditioned for the solo of I'll Be There. Mm-hmm. And it was a watershed moment, let's say. <laughs> um, it was, uh, I think, ever since I sang that solo, I think something has been a little bit different with me. I mean, I noticed that I had a voice and I could sing and people recognized that in me. And I really kind of, I, I came to love it. Not as much as I love the clarinet, I think... There was something about the client that i could touch and feel and make things happen um in a way that was really comforting to me and felt more flexible than singing
0: yeah a, a sort of tactile external I- instrument um I've, I've always thought that the voice is such a personal instrument because it's it is your voice um it is your body
1: yeah that's it's really true and i think that's what it's what that vulnerability of the voice being you and being so closely identified with you is what makes it so powerful but also what makes it so difficult (laughs) yeah the voice can be a lot more fickle and while dealing with reeds or humidity or having to carry clarinets around all the time that's 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 its own pain in itself. But I think <laughs> the the kind of psychological aspect of being a singer and the experience of being a singer is way more variable. And there's lots more variables in singing yeah. than there is in instrumental playing.
0: Yeah, that has its own weight. You're not carrying a case, but you're carrying yourself. Yeah. Um, so did you attend any concerts um, when you were a kid? Um, And did you like sort of always keep an eye out for the clarinet part? Or, um, you know, did you see an opera when you were really young?
1: So I grew up in southern Wisconsin and there weren't really a lot of classical music opportunities near me. The nearest kind of student orchestra um, was an hour away to our north in Madison. And so I really kind of grew up on, um, band music in a way, and I had not really actually seen an opera until I was in, I believe it was until I was in high school. And when I was in high school, um, we had the chance to see the magic flute, uh, by the Madison opera and an outreach performance for kids. And. That was so, it was just such an interesting experience for me. Cause at that time I had always been really focused on clarinet and instrumental music and I was starting to learn more, more about orchestral music as well. Um, mm-hmm. so I thought that maybe kind of what I wanted to do and kind of seeing live opera for the first time with an orchestra was. It's a it's a really visceral experience. It's really you it's un, indescribable, I would say. It's just a really different um kind of gripping experience as an audience member.
0: What do you remember from um seeing The Magic Flute when you were in high school?
1: What I remember most is the sound of the orchestra and how it just complemented what was going on on stage and that interplay, I think. It was really for me about, yes, the singers were virtuosic. And I, of course, everybody loves the big queen of the night arias. Um, mm-hmm. Almost every, even if you don't know classical music, it's an instantly recognizable tune. And I love those. But when I, since I had so closely identified with being an instrumentalist and a clarinetist, I was just listening to the orchestra so much of the time, to the winds, the clarinets, bassoons, oboes flutes, and how they kind of interact with the singers in I That really struck me in, in how detailed and um, intimate and indi- indicative the instruments were to the storytelling.
0: So you're talking to us today about the orchestra pit. Why does this topic interest you so much?
1: I chose to talk about the orchestra pit today because I think that while the singers and um, all of the stage crew works very, very hard. I think we wouldn't have the opera at all without the orchestra. And they put in so, so many hours. And they are really the workhorses of the opera house, in my opinion. And I think that deserves to be recognized. And in addition, they bring so much to what we do. It's really a whole other art form happening down there, too, as in addition to what's going on on the stage. And that kind of marriage of the two creates a beautiful opera.
0: Yeah, definitely. The orchestra is the unsung hero of the opera. Um, do you think an opera can exist without an orchestra?
1: Yeah, I think uh, an opera can totally exist without without uh, an orchestra. One of the things that I've most recently seen that I really loved was a podcast called... Let me look it up here it's a, a virtual podcast opera there's i think five mini operas and um there's like a backing track and multiple singers and it's so cool and all of these stories kind of connect somehow um this is called the podcast opera is called aquanet and Funions. it's by experiments <laughs> in opera and it is so cool it's amazing
0: so how do they do an opera without an orchestra? Like, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, they made tracks like accompaniment tracks for the singers to sing to. And then they must have layered the voices on top of it with separate recordings. Um, and it's ingenious. And they tell all these different stories and there's duets and ensembles. There's like an eight part ensemble of singers and it sounds amazing.
0: It's this... Um electronic music like MIDI, M-I-D-I, or is it like overlaying with the the TikTok sort of sensation with the Ratatouille musical and people just like keep layering and layering and layering I think it's, different I, sounds on it?
1: No, I think it's um, a real recording because the the piano track, there's a real kind of piano sound. It doesn't really sound like a MIDI. There's also a solo saxophone and there's strings too, not that many. There's just a couple. Um, So I wouldn't necessarily call it an orchestra, maybe an ensemble, but it sounds to me like it's tracks being played rather Mm. than like, again, a layering of tracks.
0: So how would you delineate, you know, an orchestra and an ensemble? How would you define the orchestra?
1: I think when I think of an orchestra, I think of a even a chamber orchestra, maybe like I have a kind of a number of around a 12 in my head. And I think Mm -hmm. after 12, even if there are no strings and that kind of substantial number would be called a chamber orchestra at that point. But I think that because there's just so many individuals, so many different moving parts, it's an orchestra at that point, whereas maybe groups under 12 or maybe even as small as eight I would just call that kind of an ensemble rather than um, an orchestra.
0: And, and so can you tell us who is in the orchestra pit? Like what, what are the parts of an orchestra pit?
1: For an orchestra in the pit, it's basically the composition of a symphony orchestra. So that includes two sections of violins, um, one group playing first violin, one group playing second, violas, um, an instrument lower in pitch than the violin and then uh, celli, which are cellos, the plural for the plural for cellos. And then there's usually a couple string basses, but not that many because they're usually quite loud. And then you also have winds. So in a full symphony orchestra, there's usually two clarinets, two flutes, two oboes, two bassoons. Um, as well as four to five French horns, um, sometimes a tuba, at least (laughs) two, sometimes three trombones, uh, a percussion section, sometimes keyboards. So sometimes there'll be a piano in the orchestra or someone that plays celeste, which is like um, a little keyboard with bells on it. And there's also the conductor who stands and makes it all happen and keeps it all together.
0: So why do we call this an orchestra pit?
1: So the pit has a really kind of a really funny history. The pit used to actually be a place where people would watch the show. Um, This was in the really early days before there was kind of live music happening on stage and it was mostly spoken word like plays and drama. So people would stand there very cramped together to watch stage works while everyone else would sit and be able to see the full stage. These people, um, they, tickets usually were very cheap. Um, they wouldn't be able to see the whole stage, but they'd be able to be very close to the action. And over time, it became a place where the musicians sat, um, to accompany the music happening on stage over time. There has there have been, Really big changes in what that space means. In early in earlier music, say early opera music like Monteverdi or Baroque pieces, there were really only a couple people in the pit. This would be um, a continuo player, which is someone playing keyboards and chords, and a few strings, maybe a wind or two, not that many. Um, but over time the pit got bigger and bigger and deeper because the size of the orchestra got larger and larger. And then eventually Mm. when we get to Wagner, um, the pit, the pit orchestra has become huge, even sometimes larger than a normal symphony orchestra with 80 plus people, 80 plus musicians in the pit accompanying singers on stage. So it's, it's yeah. And it's really expanded over time.
0: So when we're talking about an opera orchestra, what is the usual rehearsal process for that?
1: So, the, for, okay. so for a time, the singers and the opera orchestra are completely separate. The singers, because um, their work is much more ingrained and all of their music has to be memorized, they usually start way early. They start learning their scores months beforehand Um, before the orchestra even thinks about getting together so they memorize all their music they show up memorized ready to um, work and then they spend a couple weeks just doing the staging and making sure everything is in order for when they put the orchestra together probably two to three weeks before the opera is to run then the orchestra starts having rehearsals and that's not really a long amount of time before the show starts. I mean, operas can be sometimes three plus hours long and to only have two weeks, maybe 10 days or less to put together three hours of continuous music is um, pretty crazy. It's, It's a really long process and rehearsals can be kind of grueling. Eventually around a week or maybe a week and a half before the opera is scheduled to run, the singers and the orchestra get together for something called a Sitzprobe. Sitzprobe is a German word that means um, sit, zits and to rehearse, Probe, it's called a sitting rehearsal. And that's where the singers and the orchestra meet for the first time with the conductor. And they basically do a straight run-through of the music with no staging, um, just in concert, in a kind of concert formation. And that's done to acquaint the singers with the orchestra and the orchestra to acquaint themselves with the singers just as a as a preparation for all the craziness that's to come in staging and in performance
0: I kind of want to jump back to uh, your your clarinet days um, do you do you miss playing the clarinet?
1: You know I really do sometimes miss playing
0: the clarinet. I do. Are you not continuing? or you not like playing on the side?
1: No, I don't. I don't play anymore. Mostly because I, I'm pretty sure I've lost the ability to. Um, so, what happened with me is after I entered Eastman as a clarinet major during the first couple months of school, I started realizing that my lips would just kind of give out when I try to play for long periods of time, and it was kind of becoming. Disconcerting, I mean, I couldn't really make it through large pieces and ensemble or solo pieces by myself were so, so terrifying. I had no idea if I'd get through them. And, um, so I, I went to see different specialists about this and got a lot of kind of different diagnoses. And I, I don't know if I believe what everyone has told me about it, but or like earth or the diagnosis I really like fully believe in but it I basically knew that what was going on with me probably wasn't going to change and my kind of dream of having a career as an orchestral clarinetist probably wasn't going to happen um, and that was really that was really hard it's real coming to terms with that took a really long time and necessitated a year off of school for me just to kind of regroup and figure out what I was going to do.
0: Yeah, that sounds like sort of um, a, a sort of a uh, I- identity crisis, maybe. Um, so how, how are you finding singing? Are you finding any um, limitations to that? Or is that all good? That's a weird question. <laughs> I don't know why I'm asking that. <laughs> You don't have to answer that. No, I can. Um,
1: I can talk about how much I love singing.
0: <laughs> I guess I, I just didn't realize, like, I, I, so, so my partner is a clarinetist and I didn't realize there was this sort of um, physical limitation about it. I mean, like he's mentioned the difference between clarinet lips and smoker's lips. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's very, very interesting because I mean, for for me, I had an underbite, and I was afraid to go into singing because of that. And so, I'm I'm curious to hear more about. I mean, maybe maybe this is too personal, but the the sort of what was going on with with um your lips that were, you know, you're unable to play the clarinet, but you're able to sing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd be happy to talk about it. So. I would be fine for maybe 20 minutes or so of kind of inconsistent playing, like playing a phrase or a scale, stopping, playing a phrase, scale, stopping. I feel fine. But then when I'd go to play something where, um, my lips would have to engage a lot and I'd have to hold the position for a very long time, like a solo piece or a piece for solo clarinet with no piano, I would really struggle to get through it because, The corners of my lips would give out. Um, When you play clarinet, you really need. There's a. When you play clarinet, there's a strong band of muscle that goes all the way around your lips um, and it makes like a ring. And Mm -hmm. at the corners of it is where I really struggled, like the corners of your smile. I couldn't hold them. And I I couldn't hold that position for long periods of time to create that kind of muscular ring to hold the instrument up. And so eventually I would just kind of come down to bite on the the mouthpiece after a while. Um, And it kind of waned. And if I stopped playing for a while, I could play for a little bit longer, but then it would just get worse. um, And my lips would just give out. And so in relation to singing, I can sing because, an important thing about singing is there's very little muscular tension. There's almost no holding. It's supposed to be very released and relaxed. And as opposed to the kind of muscular engagement in your mouth that you'd play for an instrument. So it was kind of a blessing. I got to let go and not worry about if my muscles are gonna give out.
0: Yeah, and, and earlier we were talking about you know, this sort of physical tactile manifestation of, you know, the instrument that you're choosing and it's sort of like, maybe, I don't know, age or something caught up with you and your, your muscles just couldn't, couldn't make it through, you know, an extended period of time, but your, your breath support, I'm guessing as a singer has, um, has given you no issue.
1: Yeah. The way that the clarinet playing has translated into my singing is really interesting. Because on a technical level, I have a really, I do, I have a very large breath support because I've trained those muscles for a long time. Um, And also I've had just more time to physically mature as a singer. And that's just, that's always good for singers. I mean, the older we get, the better our voices get. And in addition to technically, I have seven plus years of musical knowledge to draw on when a lot of singers may start singing classically towards the end of high school or around then. But before I entered college, I had so much experience in classical music already. I didn't have to go in blind, not knowing kind of stylistic details or just things about music. Um, And I think it's also really influenced the kind of music I like. I really gravitated towards pieces that I wouldn't say feature the clarinet, but they were mm-hmm. kind of timely around the cl- clarinet if that makes sense
0: the piece, like what what are some examples of that
1: like some of the music that i'm drawn to is kind of more romantic and later like i really love the symphonies of brahms um i really like strauss a lot too um both feature clarinet heavily in their works other things i really enjoy i really like um to sing new music as well, and there's lots of new music written for the clarinet. Um, mm-hmm. And because clarinet was more of a late classical early romantic instrument, I didn't really have a lot of experience with baroque and early music. But as a singer, it's been really, really fun to kind of explore that genre because especially vocal music, the vocal music of Handel is so it's so virtuosic. And precise and elegant, I think, that kind of and that music kind of reflects the music of the music that clarinetists play. I'm thinking works like the Mozart, Clarinet Concerto. Um, so yeah, there's kind of stylistic things I enjoy, like the big romantic the big romantic pieces that clarinet was featured in, but also I think there's a really big part of me and who I am as an artist that identifies with the grace and elegance and virtuosity of the instrument.
0: So do you think you come into the opera world more from sort of instrumentalists perspective rather than um, um, maybe the singer's way, the performer on stage?
1: You know, I think-
0: Like how, how did you get into opera? Did you get into opera because you played the clarinet Um, and you, you had also sang when you were younger and, um, you found, you know, earlier on in college that you, you couldn't play the clarinet for an extended period of time, but you could sing. So you want to try that out? Um, yeah,
1: I think I kind of fell into the opera world because I loved music and because I loved classical music so much. Um, not necessarily that I loved singing or I loved opera. Um, I certainly at one time really loved the clarinet and now I really love, I really do love singing. I love singing and I love opera, but when I was kind of finding my way into it, it more felt like I'm here for the music. There's almost times where I'm listening to vocal music and I thought, I don't care what the words are. I just think the music is so beautiful and that's enough for me. And that's, I think that shows in a lot of, how i how i work as a singer i mean i'm i'm so true personally to what's on the page and that's like that's what i value most um over time i really come to know the beauty of words and language and that's definitely become a huge part of what i love about opera but originally it it wasn't um it it impacts how i make music i think i definitely make music like an instrumentalist i'm still really tied to rhythm really strongly in a way, in ways that I think singers are not. If I'm in a really difficult opera where the music is maybe atonal or really tricky, I have to almost find pitches in rhythm. I really find it tricky to not be in rhythm at all. And I think some singers are a lot more rhythmically, more free, Um, but interestingly, I also feel really liberated when I sing because of language and because singing is so uniquely personal and it's it's just so individual that the ability to throw your soul and your voice out there to an audience is so powerful, way more powerful than any kind of performance I could give on clarinet, I think. So overall while I really truly love the clarinet and I love the process of it. And sometimes singing can be frustrating. I think the ultimate artistic product of singing is way more personally validating and I love it so much.
0: So earlier on, you said you got into opera through the music because you came from that, um, clarinet instrumentalist, um, track. Uh, I mean, I and I actually want to share share a story um, about myself. That that's sort of what I gravitated toward when I was in high school. Um, I I was um, an actor and I performed in plays and musical theater on stage, but all of the friends that I hung out with were, for some reason, the marching band or the orchestra players, and you know. You know, in high school, you'd call them band geeks or orc dorks, um, and yet I was I was sort of the only, you know, actor among 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 my friends. All the other actors had, were like their own clique, but all of all of my my friends were in the orchestra, and it was so strange to me when, you know, I, I was cast in this this small role in The King and I, and I remember. Um, that I wouldn't have a lot of stage time. So instead I would spend a lot of my time in the orchestra pit. And like um, one of my friends played the tuba and the tuba is usually situated toward the back of the orchestra pit. And I, I just ha- there happened to be a second chair right next to him. And I just sat there and the conductor, you know, who is also my choir director um, directing the orchestra, conducting the orchestra, he was like, totally cool with me, you know, being in the orchestra pit, as long as I didn't miss a cue up on stage. Um, And so it was really, it was really interesting to me then how, I mean, I didn't even know I would go into opera um, as a stage manager um, because I still pursued being an actor in musical theater um, when I started college. But that, that I still remember being in the orchestra pit Um, of the King and I. One, I didn't have a lot of stage time, but it was just more fun down there because that's where, that's where the music is.
1: That's beautiful. There's something to be said about being, maybe you probably felt more a part of it. Um, And I definitely do feel more a part of a community here and like more deeply connected to music because I, I, because I have this background, but also at times I feel a little left out sometimes or I feel kind of, what's the term I'm looking for? I don't want to say I feel like an ugly duckling. What's like a-
0: Oscar-sized. Yeah, a little
1: bit, I mean, not not that negative though. I kind of feel at times like an outsider because I, I just have this other kind of life and this other different perspective. And it just makes me see Things a lot differently, and it, I think it makes me approach music and how I how I interact with music a lot differently than a lot of other singers.
0: You feel like sorry, you feel like an outsider in the singers' world or in the instrumentalist. In,
1: in the singer world, I do feel a little, a little, uh, a little bit like an outsider.
0: I mean, I wonder if you, I mean, because this is this is again my own personal experience and empathy is. Do you feel like do you feel like an outsider in the singer's world because you came into the singing profession a little later than maybe some of your colleagues like you you started college as a clarinet you took a year off and then you got into singing and maybe you think um that the other singers have been singing longer than you have Yeah that be yeah, part of I, d- it?
1: I do think age is a part of it, mostly because when I read entered, I was two years older than everyone I was with the whole time. So, I, yeah, I've been talking with grad students in the past saying, oh, I'm t- turning 24 next week. And then they told me, oh, I'm not even 22 yet. And I thought, what just what is going on? I, I, I do feel kind of outside of the track, the general, the general track of things is how people enter. Yeah. Into school.
0: Yeah. I know. I know how you feel about that because, you know, there's, um, what, what are they called traditional four-year yep. students, um, that you go, you know, you, you, you graduate from high school when you're 18 and then you go to college and you're yeah. done by 21 or 22. Um, for me, when I was in high school, I, I actually transferred high schools, um, which is partially why, the the sort of acting clique had already established yeah. their clique and i i came into high school at this new high school mm. as a sophomore no friends um and so i just sort of you know came upon you know the the orchestra people and the the band people people who played music because i also liked you know music too um and I always felt out of place, just like you did, in the sense that I always had to take classes with the first years as a sophomore. Um, even though I was, you know, like I had already—I don't know what I'm—I'm sa- I'm saying, but like I, I know what you mean by that yeah. age difference.
1: And I, I think where where I was going with this is that as an outsider, we see things differently. But I think that we can see things more for what they are, what they really are, because we do have this experience. Um, For me, when I'm on stage or when I'm interacting with musicians, especially if I'm on the stage and there's a pit and I recognize that, you know, those 30 people down there that are accompanying me have been sitting there for so long. They've trained for decades to be at the level where they're at and then to Accompany me, simply accompany me, and not be a soloist themselves. It's just sometimes they get wrapped up in kind of how maybe narcissistic singing is, or just I realize that singers on a, on stage, singing with an orchestra, being having all these things put on us, we are so lucky, we are so absolutely privileged, and I mean, mm-hmm. who gave us the right to say that what I have to offer people want to pay to see?
0: So how do you think we, as both an audience and those of us who are on the stage, how do you think we can appreciate the orchestra musicians more if we're not already doing I it? I think
1: as singers, to always be prepared with with what you bring to the stage and not have to do things twice, you know, ha- being memorized, having the staging in in your body correctly, and not wasting their time, I think is really important. I think orchestras can get very frustrated when singers go through things too many times that isn't needed for them because the orchestra has way less rehearsal. They put together operas and concerts in way less time than singers take. And so they are looking to get it right on the first try. And so it's really important for singers to have that precision and the ability to do it and knock it out of the park as soon as possible.
0: Yeah, I I as a stage manager, um once once the orchestra um gets involved in in our pro- rehearsal process, I'm always thinking, okay, we're on orchestra time now. Um we are doing what we can do with how long we have the orchestra. And so let's not waste that time because it you're you'd be wasting, you know. 30 35 maybe more of their time and by doing a scene over and over again um it doesn't it doesn't really get anywhere yeah um yeah exactly okay so being being respectful of their time being
1: respectful of their (laughs) time i would say also recognizing the gravity of what you're doing as a singer i mean you are the the face of the production and they're what you are what's being seen. And I think you need to give any chance you have to give the orchestra credit, bowing to them, giving them an arm after an aria is really important to recognize them. For audience members to respect the orchestra, respect the overture and any interludes that they may play, because that is just it's free orchestral music. There's 60 people playing for. I guess it's not free, you're paying for a ticket, but that's music that you get to listen to and experience and soak it all up, really relish in their, in their playing because they're there for your entertainment.
0: That was my interview with Nathaniel Malko, who trained as a clarinetist for eight years before becoming a singer. In March, Nate sang his senior recital at the Eastman School of Music, which you can watch on YouTube. You can follow Nate on Instagram at Nathaniel Malko. Hi everyone, this is Josh. I want to thank you for listening and learning with me on What is Opera Anyway, the podcast. What is Opera Anyway is a 501c3 nonprofit organization designed to bring a comprehensive opera education program directly to you to your computer screen, to your headphones, and to the classroom. Through diverse programming, participants will learn many ways to answer the question, what is opera anyway? Our podcast is supported in part by a grant by the Andover Cultural Council, a local agency, which is supported by the Mass Cultural Council, a state agency. To support WIOA or to learn more about our other programs, you can check out our website at whatisoperaanyway.org. You can sponsor a student episode or an episode of this podcast, but we welcome donations of any size. And of course, because we're a nonprofit, all your donations are tax-deductible. You can also help us by spreading the word about our organization and what we do. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook. If you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, or if you have a question about opera, you can contact us, and tune in every other Wednesday, or better yet, follow or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, you can leave us a rating and a review. The composer of our overture is Reagan Castile. You can hear more of her work at ReganCastile.com. Our podcast logo was designed by Francesca Leonetta and Hannah Stokes. Our social media is done by Vina Akama Makia. Our producers, technical directors and editors are Jeremy Lopez and Noah Sesling. And our executive producer is Francesca Leonetta. I'm Josh Lau, thank you for listening. I've got so much more to learn about opera and maybe you do too, because what is opera anyway?